月15日総評は大規模な統一行動に入り安保改定阻止国民会議も国会へ西岸デモを行いました As thousands of marchers took to the streets of cities across Japan in support of Black Lives Matter in recent weeks, critics on social media decried the demonstrations as disruptions of Japan's harmonious and orderly society, falsely claiming that Japan has no history of street protest or tradition of civil disobedience. Yet this was not the first time large numbers of disgruntled Japanese of all walks of life took to the streets to protest systemic inequalities in Japanese society and politics. In fact, the Black Lives Matter protests of June 2020 coincided with the 60th anniversary of the violent 1960 protests opposing the re-signing of the controversial U.S.-Japan Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security, colloquially known as AMPL. What led people to the streets in protests of the AMPL Treaty in 1960? Where do the Anpo protests fit within the longer history of street protests in Japan, up to the present-day Black Lives Matter protests? And finally, how has the U.S.-Japan relationship changed since the protest against the Anpo Treaty 60 years ago? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the history and legacy of the 1960 Anpo protests, I talked with Dr. Nick Kapoor, associate professor in the Department of History at Rutgers University, Camden. Dr. Kapoor is the author of Japan at the Crossroads: Conflict and Compromise After Ampo, published by Harvard University Press in 2018. I started by asking Dr. Kapoor to describe what drove Japanese into the streets in the summer of 1960. Yeah, well, I think these protests actually had a pretty long history going back throughout the 1950s and In my book Japan at the Crossroads, I actually trace it back to the US occupation. Obviously, the proximate cause of these protests was this U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which is the treaty that still allows the United States to maintain military bases in Japan to this day. And in 1960, they were going to revise that treaty. In fact, trying to make it more equitable towards Japan and more fair. So the original U.S.-Japan Security Treaty had sort of been forced on Japan. In 1952, as a condition for ending the U.S. military occupation of Japan, but that treaty was pretty one-sided, and it didn't even compel the United States to defend Japan if Japan were to be attacked. It allowed U.S. military troops to be used to put down internal Japanese demonstrations, which seemed like a pretty harsh measure. Among other odious provisions, these provisions were going to be removed in the 1960 treaty. And so it seemed like it was going to be a better treaty, but a lot of people just didn't want to have any security treaty between the United States and Japan. And so, as a kind of strategy, they opposed the revision, even though the revised treaty was going to be much better. And so that's sort of the origins of this protest movement. But to understand how these protests got so large, I think we really have to look at the legacies of the occupation, as I mentioned, and what was going on in the 1950s. And so, as I argue in the book, I think the U.S. occupation left a kind of dual legacy to Japanese society because initially, this is sort of famous, but initially there was a liberal occupation, as it's sometimes described. I don't know if that was really the case or not, but I sort of see it not so liberal, but punishing Japan for daring to make war on the United States. 
But as part of this, they legalized labor unions. They broke up the big Zaibatsu financial conglomerates. They released all the communists from jail. They purged a lot of the right-wing government officials. And so you could see that as liberals, or you could see that as, haha, we're going to unleash all these forces on Japan so they won't be able to start any wars. And then you have the, the so-called reverse course when the United States realizes the Cold War is starting, the Soviet Union has tested atomic bombs, uh, and then China, quote-unquote, falls to the communists. And so you have this um, conservative turn in occupation policy. They depurge all the officials. This is all, all pretty well-known stuff. And they start empowering right-wing forces and the police. They create the National Police Agency, which eventually becomes the self-defense forces. And so on one hand, the occupation initially empowers the left, and on the other hand, it starts empowering the right after the reverse course. And so I see the 50s as a sort of ever-escalating clash between these forces to decide the future of Japanese society. And so you have increasingly large protests in the 1950s, increasingly contentious strikes by labor unions, clashes with police, and you also have this U.S.-Japan Security Treaty in 1952 when the occupation officially ends, which leaves all these military bases all over Japan. Those become the focus of a huge anti-base protest movement that's nationwide, and there's some violent clashes. People have written about this. Most recently, Dustin Wright has written about the Sunagawa struggle. And so I see the 1960 protests as a kind of climax of this longer history of clashes between left and right and between organized labor and industry that was going on throughout the 50s. And that allows these protests to become so large because it's a lot of these groups from these earlier protests that are coming together. And it takes on this sort of apocalyptic feeling where this is the final battle and we, if we don't make our stand now, we're going to lose out forever. And both sides felt that. So the left feels we, we have to make a final stand. And then the right feels we can't allow the left to win. And so to me, it's this longer history, which helps explain how these protests got so large. Uh, you know, they're the largest protests in Japan's modern history and the longest too. I mean, lasting for about a year and a half. June is the, the climax, June 1960, but they start in the spring of 1959 and about 30 million people take part in some form or another. So to understand that, if you just look at the text of this treaty, it's, it's hard to see. But if you think back a little bit, it makes more sense. That's a great point about some of these systemic inequalities in Japanese society that animated some of these protests and then coming to a point where people said, well, we need to make a change now. And I think there's a lot of resonances between that and what we're seeing in Japan more recently, of course, where you have the Black Lives Matter protests in cities around Japan. And in response to that, there's been some commentary online that you know Japan is this conformist country that has no tradition of civil disobedience. But I mean, obviously, like you were just saying, 30 million people in the streets would point to the fact that no, there actually is a tradition of protests in Japan. And it wasn't just 1968. There's 1960, the era of popular violence in Tokyo in the 19-teens. Obviously, the Black Lives Matter protests are, are different from the Ampo protests. But can you put these 1960s street demonstrations into a larger history of street protests and civil disobedience in Japan more broadly? Yeah, this is a great question. And I think you make a very good point. So 
yeah, we have this image in the West today, but I think in Japan as well. In recent years, Japanese people like to think of themselves as a harmonious society, a consensus society is the term that's sometimes thrown around. But exactly what you say, you don't have to look back that far to see extremely contentious and even violent protests in Japan, certainly in 1960, but also in the later 60s in Japan. But as I already mentioned, Throughout the 50s, incredibly contentious protests all over Japan every year, you know, hundreds of, of strikes, people getting beaten up and, you know, these anti-base protests, the police go attack the protesters. And so you see this incredible protest activity in the 50s. And, you know, scholars are starting to write about this. I talk a little bit about this in my book, but of course, we've also had recently Kenji Hasegawa's Student Radicalism and the Formation of Postwar Japan, which is about student protests in the 50s. We've had Jennifer Miller's Cold War Democracy, which is about anti-base protests, especially. And uh, Justin Jesty has also written about artists who've been engaged in some of these protest movements. So I think we're starting to, to rethink the 50s in Japan as a time of contention and protest. But as you mentioned, this goes back earlier in Japanese history. So yeah, you go back to the 1910s, you have this so-called era of popular violence when there's numerous riots, you know, after the Portsmouth Treaty and the Russo-Japanese War. There's huge violent riots in Tokyo. They burn over 700 koban, these police boxes. They attack the mansions of the cabinet members. And then if you want to go back further into the Edo period, hundreds of violent peasant protests. There's violent protests throughout the Meiji period against modernization, against public schools, against the military draft. And so really, in my view, we have a couple of anomalous periods, right? When you might plausibly try to claim that Japan is a harmonious consensus society. Of course, one is the sort of height of wartime in the 30s and 40s, when you have a repressive regime that's suppressing protest and free speech. But that required a lot of effort. The peace preservation laws, they had to round up thousands of people and throw them in jail to try to suppress dissent. So that was pretty artificial. And then you have a more recent period in which there hasn't been that much protest activity in Japan. I would say in the 70s, there's still a lot going on. But by the 80s and 90s, it seems to be perhaps a more harmonious society. But as I actually argue in the conclusion of my book, I think in some ways this is a result or a response to these very violent and contentious protests in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s that people get tired of that or there's a backlash or react against that. And so in my book, I detail all of the initiatives or the conservative counter-revolution, the type of steps people took to deliberately, in many cases, make large-scale protests, street protests, less likely to happen again. They, they were afraid of this happening again. They didn't want it to happen again. And so they put in place all kinds of measures to make this more difficult or to satisfy people so they would not have to do this. And so because of that, you get this period of relative calm. And then I think, you know, in the in the 70s and the 80s, especially and continuing to today, there's a, a sort of attempt by Japanese cultural commentators to, I would say, almost reconstruct a basis of Japanese nationalism in the absence of an overseas empire and a, an official military. You know, what are we as Japanese people what makes us different or special. And then, of course, you get this kind of second wave of Nihonjin Ron or these theories about the Japanese race and why it's unique or special. And I think within that discourse, you get this 
idea that Japan is a harmonious consensus society. But looking at, at almost any part of the rest of Japanese history, you see just as many protests as anywhere else. So it's really an anomalous period. And then there's an active effort to construct this narrative by Japanese cultural commentators, which then gets exported to the West. And so this idea of a conformist society, yeah, you just don't see it, except for maybe these these two periods, right? That's a great point about maybe the new nationalism of Japanese conformity. I, I remember after the Tohoku earthquake, for example, on March 11th, 2011, there was a lot of Japanese people online saying things like, oh, well, you don't see looting in Japan the way that you do in other countries, especially the U.S. And you know, there are a lot of people saying like, oh, aren't you glad to be Japanese as a result of this? And say, you know, look how orderly everybody is in the wake of this disaster in ways unusual in other countries around the world. Yeah, so I think... By this point, you know, we're maybe 40 or 50 years on, people have internalized this narrative and they believe it. And so in, in some sense, it, 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 it's real. It's not, uh, you know, once people start to believe it, then it becomes actualized in some sense. But at the same time, we have this longer legacy of Japanese people protesting, and that's also available. Uh, and so, you know, we look at some of the recent protest movements in Japan, and they do look back to 1960 or other earlier protest movements, and they say, look, we used to protest, and so we can do so again. Yeah, I mean, even as recently as 2012, there was the Students for Emergency Action for Liberal Democracy and getting hundreds of thousands of people in front of the diet in scenes that were very reminiscent of the 1960 and 1968 protests. Yeah, and, and some of those people were looking back to these earlier protest movements. Um, and so those aspects of Japanese culture are also, you know, lying in wait and perhaps can be resurrected at some point. And, and we, maybe we've seen that a little bit already. Speaking of looking back to the 1960s, there's been a lot of commentators in the U.S. especially observing that 2020 is 1968 all over again, and maybe the U.S. is reliving the 1960s. Now, of course, 2020 this year also marks the 60th anniversary of the 1960 protests that you wrote about in your book. And there seems to be a lot of similarities. You know, there's protests in the streets of both countries. The U.S. and Japan are once again finding themselves navigating their own tensions, along with confronting mutual adversaries in East Asia again. So, you know, looking at back at it from 2020, what has actually changed in the U.S.-Japan relationship over the last 60 years? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question as well. And I think one of the arguments that I've made in my book is that, you know, the settlement after the 1960 protests and the aftermath of that kind of cemented the future direction of the U.S.-Japan alliance and the relationship between these two countries. And actually, you know, as much as I might want that relationship to change in certain ways or hope that it would, personally, I don't see that much as having actually changed. I think the basic bargain of the U.S.-Japan alliance which is that the U.S. gets to have these bases in Japan, and then Japan's going to have access to U.S. markets and support the United States' foreign policy. I think that's largely still in place. I think it seemed a little bit that maybe Trump was going to disrupt this. Uh, he made some comments about pulling U.S. troops out of Japan, or Japan needs to pay more. Um, for these bases. But we haven't seen much movement in terms of the sort of bedrock of this relationship. And as far as I can tell, things are continuing the way they always have. And it's interesting because we do see Trump disrupting things a lot more in Europe with NATO. He recently just announced that he's pulling troops out of Germany. And so perhaps given more time, Trump might 
disrupt the U.S.-Japan relationship more, but I think probably the main factor holding him back so far is his much greater animosity towards China uh, and the need to be strong against China. And so I think it's very easy for people to tell Trump, hey, we need these spaces in Japan to be strong against China. China seems much more of a threat to Trump for whatever reason than Russia, uh, even though Russia might actually be meddling more in our democracy and, and other things. But Trump seems to not be concerned about Russia. And so he's happy to meddle with NATO, but he's definitely concerned about China. And in that sense, maybe he needs these bases in Japan still. Uh, and I think this speaks to the larger issue, which is that in, in my view and the view of many others, the Cold War ended in Europe, but it didn't really end in Asia. We could say maybe there's a new Cold War in Europe with the way Russia has been behaving recently, but it's been more or less continuous in Asia. And so insofar as the Cold War maybe never ended in Asia, the U.S.-Japan relationship has remained stuck in that sort of Cold War framework. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast for scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.